This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon. My name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you are listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel in the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors who you'd love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btopher at topherarchitecture.com. Today's guest is Dave Colangelo to talk about his book, The Building a Screen, A History, Theory, and Practice of Massive Media. Dave is Assistant Professor of Digital Creation and Communication in Professional Communication, at the Creative School at Toronto Metropolitan University, as well as the North American Director of the Media Architecture Institute and co-founder of Public Visualization Studio. Dave, thank you very much for being here with me today and welcome to the show. Thanks, Brian. Happy to be here. So before we begin, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure. Um, Well, uh, apart from what you just mentioned in my bio there, um, the work that I do in... Uh, in my research is really focused on media architecture. And so that's urban screens, public projections, um, LED facades, those sorts of things. But I also make work for those spaces. And we'll talk about that a little bit because the book really goes back and forth between research and practice. And my practice is through Public Visualization Studio, where we're actually sort of thinking critically and creatively about how to use these spaces. So um, that's really the the two main parts of of my work. Um, And then that third part is working with the Media Architecture Institute. So uh, every couple of years, we run the Media Architecture Biennale. And I'm actually running the next Biennale. It's going to be in Toronto this summer in June. So I'm I'm sort of in the thick of that right now, organizing that. Uh, We've got um, awards industry awards, student awards, academic paper sessions, keynotes, all kinds of things that revolve around uh, questions about the intersection between media and architecture. So all, all of the different ways that those two things come together, um, primarily you know, visually, but increasingly thinking about other forms, sound, um, interaction, um, um, uh, urban user experience really is kind of a, a growing area of of research and practice. So yeah, that's that's kind of my work in a nutshell. Great. And so you know, initially I wanted to ask about massive media, but I think it it would be very easy to explain by talking about a case study. And as I'd mentioned, there's a lot of great case studies. Sadly, we just can't get to them all. But I was wondering if, and I know that's a big question. If you could talk us through a little bit, one of the case studies I think you go into a lot of detail about, and that is the CN Tower or the E Tower. 
Yeah. Um, and that's that's a great example uh, for me to talk about because it's one that I can see almost every day. It's uh, it's really massive. It's um, the the CN Tower. I uh, wish I had the the um, exact number here, but um, it, it basically you could see it from from everywhere in the city. Uh, and it was a communications tower that was built in the 70s in Toronto, um, and more recently in the mid 2000s was. Uh, fitted with uh, LEDs, so uh, Philips Color Kinetics. Uh, right now, I think they're called Signify. The company changed their name at some point, but um, they really sort of were were one of the main companies that was involved in bringing these addressable LED systems to buildings. Um, and so, yeah, the CN Tower. The CN Tower is kind of this example of massive media. The, the massive part is pretty obvious, right? It's this humongous uh, TV tower um, that that could be seen from you know forty kilometers away in every direction, um, and in that sense, like like monuments, like statues, um, it's defined by its scale and visibility. It derives a lot of its sort of power from that it's 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 attraction is really based on that and in a lot of ways i sort of talk about how architecture at that scale is kind of a form of broadcasting it's something that is experienced widely because of its scale and visibility um the media part is is that additional sort of element that we begin to see more and more of with the addition of of different screens, lighting, projection, sound, even things like augmented reality. Um, So the media part is because these buildings now also have elements and characteristics of digital moving images, sound, interactivity, communication technologies, networks, etc. They become these kind of dense transfer points for meaning and for communication because of those two capabilities and and each sort of draws on the other in a way uh great so i appreciate that and so specifically in the book you talk about work you did at the cn tower that i think encapsulates a lot of the ideas of the book so could you maybe elaborate on that a little bit Sure. So the project that we made for the CN Tower was called E-Tower, and it was presented as part of Nuit Blanche in 2010. Um, Nuit Blanche is an all-night art, public art party that uh, has been held in Toronto for a number of years now, over a decade. Um, uh, originally started in Paris, I believe, and is been replicated in a number of other cities but um, basically from from sundown till sunrise you can walk around the city and experience public art and the work that we created for that um, was using the CN Tower and it asked people this was pre-smartphone ubiquity we asked people to send the word energy to text the word energy to a specific short code and the more energy that we got, the faster and brighter the lights on the CN Tower became. So um, we started with kind of cooler colors and slower animations. And then we progressed you know, from blues to, to yellows to greens to reds. And the animations really picked up. So it became this kind of massive, massive public data visualization of the city's energy on a symbol of 
the city's energy in a way. The CN Tower really kind of represents this idea of energy and vitality and, and you know, uh, technological advancement, even though it's kind of quite dated now. Um, but you know it's a it's a symbol of the city's aspirations in a way, um, and so this gets into something that I talk about in the third chapter of my book, which is thinking about specifically things like LED facades as this form of public data visualization. So data visualization is something that you know has really become very popular and really sort of advanced quite a bit in the last few decades, um, and. What we ended up doing through this and a number of other projects was experimenting with this idea. Um, Oftentimes with a data visualization, you think about matching something about the source domain with the target domain. So, you know, let's say you want to visualize how much pizza you ate. Well, a pie chart that looks like a pizza is kind of a fun way to communicate something like that. Well, do you want to visualize the energy of the city? Could you do that on a symbol of the city's energy itself? And that was the idea of matching that source and target domain. And we've continued to think about ways to do that um, in other projects. And this really gets into this idea of moving between um, theory and research and practice is that we really felt like, okay, there we have these theories about about data visualization. We have these theories about monumentality. How can we sort of play with these, test these, merge these, and then actually make work so that we begin to understand things like the, you know, the technical affordances, the, you know, sort of um, the, the, the political and bureaucratic uh, uh, and, and, and technical uh, constraints and, and challenges that are involved. Uh, and that really shaped, I think, a lot of the insights of the book. It, uh, there, there's, there's both kind of a, a real sort of practical side that comes up against a lot of the theory uh, about the, the interdisciplinary sort of elements of architecture, public space, and digital media and communication that all sort of come together in these projects. You know, you make an interesting point about monumentality and you even mentioned bureaucratic. You know, you make a point very early. Again, I jump around, apologize. You make a point early on in the book that, you know, monumentality began as religious symbols, whereas now they've moved much more secular. And again, kind of sticking with the CN Tower, if I understood it correctly, you actually had to go through multiple iterations to get approval because you couldn't do anything seen as political or any kind of ideology. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, they were quite sensitive about the kinds of colors that we would show and thinking about what the outcomes of the project would be and how, you know, uh, journalists might ascribe, you know, the the colors and the, the meanings that they might interpret from the lighting show to the CN Tower and, you know, not to the artists themselves. And the, this, this really gets to that kind of bureaucratic and sort of structural layer where the CN Tower is a federally owned building. And it's because of that that they have to protect that. But then another case study in the book, the Empire State Building, has a different um, structure. It's a different model. It's a privately owned building. So what you see there is a much wider range of lighting programs on the building. And in fact, they're, they're, they're for sale, you know, um, you can, if you're shooting a film in New York, you could rent the lights out for the night so that they are a specific color to suit your 
production or, you know, the 30th anniversary of the Lion King or something like that on Broadway can pay to have the colors up on the building. They'll, they'll switch back and they'll, they'll do more sort of community focused lighting uh, events. But that's part of what I've studied in this book as well is looking at how these underlying structures and models end up changing the way that the buildings are are used and who what why and how you know people can can um, express themselves through through these buildings you mentioned the empire state building and it's an interesting example because what i was not aware of is that while of course projection technology is a lot different now but even in a you know a long time ago, people were still projecting statistics and news on the side of the building. And in fact, you even give an example of uh, Sigmund Freud seeing something like this at a time when the technology just did not exist. Yeah, um, and that was in the the Freud example is in the Piazza Colonna in um, in Italy, and um, but but that actually brings up. Uh, a, a sort of important element within all of this, that this combination of media and architecture really changes the um, the frequency of um, expression on on a building. So you know, architecture in in general traditionally is quite static and it changes through the day. And you know, there's other ways of of changing facades, um, but with projection. There's a, there's a few things going on there. There's this kind of um, accelerated ritual that can sort of be associated with buildings. And so like the Empire State Building, those lights changing frequently. There's also this possibility, and this is kind of one thing that I bring up in the book, is that there's a lot of potential there. There's, there's potential for what um, Jonathan Creary calls dehistoricization and rehistoricization. And this is this is the Freud example. He sort of says, I've gone to this square and the only thing I can remember is this projection that was up on and, and this is what he writes home about. And and so he's he's missed all of the other sort of cultural and historical cues and meanings of the square. And instead he's just been delivered to this message. Um, so, so there's a lot of potential there. There's a lot of danger there as well, right? Of, of how quickly and easily the monumentality, the scale, the, the sort of the, the, the ability to, to capture an audience's attention through these projections and, and facades um, can mean that, you know, there's a lot more expressive and representational freedom with architecture, but at the same time, you know, there's a sense that, okay, it's not, doesn't mean that it's available to everyone all the time. And then you look into models like the CN Tower or even the Empire State Building, um, there's, there's money involved, there's politics involved. Um, and then there's a whole technological layer involved as well. So there's a lot that's in between kind of the, the let's say the de- democratization of, um, of facades and, and, um, yeah, there, there, there's a lot that can get in the way there. Well, you know, speaking of democratization, and before we get there, there, you know, there was an argument, and it's made, and I know I'm going to butcher this name, made by Wadisco. Did I say that Wadichko. right? Wadichko. Wadichko. It, it talks about something very similar to what you just described, the idea that if you have a memory of a building, but then you witness a projection or some kind of installation, that may somewhat kind of supersede your previous memory. And I'm, and I'm paraphrasing that, of course. Mm-hmm. 
And so yeah. you, you, oh, I'm sorry, please. No, no, go ahead. But what I was going to, you had mentioned the democratization and that, you know, you bring up one, well, again, we can't talk, talk about all the case studies, but there's a case study you mentioned where a building was vandalized, not just physical or paint, but also the electrical components were vandalized because it was repeatedly displaying luxury ads, which may not seem like, which doesn't sound out of place at all if I was walking in Times Square, but you bring up a good point about the context of the building and how it comes off as very offensive because it was a lower income neighborhood. Yeah. Um, maybe, can I, can I go back to the Wadichko point for a second? And Please, then, I know. Maybe, I always ask two at once. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Um, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll try to, to, to get both there. Um, the first part was the, the Wadichko part about, um, and, and this is thinking through this concept of uh, ephemerality, right? Thinking about, okay, the, the potential, but also the sort of um, the, the pitfalls or the challenges of, let's say, guerrilla projection. You know, we've seen that with, you know, the 99% symbol uh, in New York. The Illuminator is, is an organization that sort of does that a lot. Christoph Wodichko has done a lot of really interesting site-specific uh, projections that are critical of, of uh, political regimes and, and um, uh, bring, bring up really important social issues. And what Wadichko talks about is how these projections create a stain on the building uh, in a way, on in memory, um, and that in many ways that can be lasting, that can reverberate, that can be powerful in a way that lasts beyond the, the um, presentation itself. One thing I'd add to that is part of what I've looked at in the book are these associated media forms that are now very much integrated into media architecture. So we'll go back to the, you know, thinking about the E-Tower example with the CN Tower, the way that we used cell phones to really have a direct impact on the media facade. Um, but then there's the Empire State Building example where they, the Empire State Building has professional photography of the building every night, every time it has a, a lighting change, and then they post that on Instagram. So they're very cognizant of the way that they can harness other media forms because of the the ephemerality the, the you know the the fact that they have new content in a way every night to broadcast to connect with different audiences and then of course people take that up and will tag other people will will use the image themselves so there's also beyond Wadichko's concept of this stain, there's also this circulation of media and buildings like the Empire State Building, one of the most photographed buildings in the world, in, in part because of you know the, the very deliberate programming that happens and the connections to other media forms, these buildings then sort of are extended through digital space because of their digital expressions uh, on their facades. So that's something I talk about as well. Yeah, that was an example from Belgium where there was a screen that was, yeah, there was a screen that was showing luxury ads. Um, and yeah, because it was a low income neighborhood, it was sort of seen as a, as an insult in a way. And the, the screen was vandalized and basically, you know, put out of commission. Um, that, that's another aspect of of thinking through massive media, thinking through media architecture, is um, the way that that context um, has to be considered 
in in the placement of these screens and the use of these screens. And there's there's lots of um, examples where where that that doesn't really work. And then there's some great examples of uh, you know community screens that are really you know I think I think what what we what we've seen in sort of the, I would say like the first phase of, of the expansion of, of digital screens and images in cities is that, is that we've missed a lot of that context. And uh, we also haven't had the structures in place to allow for more community engagement through screens and more sort of meaningful connections. But we're starting to see more of that. We're starting to see more screens being used in, um, you know, attached to community centers or art galleries or, you know, um, part of a, a civic square by a city hall or something like that, where there is an investment in the planning, production and programming of the space by, with and for community members. So that's something that, you know, a lot of my future work is is sort of focused on that, how to go beyond thinking about how to critically and creatively use screens in my own practice and start to investigate the sort of longer time frame um, and the, the wider sort of um, structural components that can lead to better um yeah, more more contextually relevant screens that benefit communities. Uh, well, that's interesting. Uh, usually, as I wrap up, I do ask, you know, what's the next project? What are what's kind of taking up your time now? I, I guess you kind of just answered me. I mean, is there more you could tell us about that future project? Um, or did well, we did, think, did you cover it already? I I think I think one thing that I'll say is that uh, a lot of the themes that we're going to be exploring in the Media Architecture Biennale this summer in Toronto um, are really focused on that. There, you know, one of our themes is equity and access, and it really is about you know who's involved in the planning, production, and programming of these spaces of massive media of media architecture of urban screens, projections, LED facades, because most often they are built. And only later, maybe there's some effort to engage with communities. Um, and again, very rarely with, with underserved communities. So we're starting to see examples of um, knowledge and benefit sharing through each of those phases and community engagement through each of those phases that really produces sites and and situations that are beneficial to to communities of use. So that's really what one of the main themes that that we're looking at and trying to highlight um, some some examples of those around the world. Trying to influence um, the you know the various people um, partners that would be involved. Uh, that would be civic leaders. That would be business improvement areas, architects urban planners, uh, artists, designers, um, you know, all, all of those people are, are going to be involved in some stage when you're thinking about that longer time frame of, of planning, production and programming and, and maintenance, you know, how do, how do these things, that, that's another big question, which I don't really talk too much about in the book, but that's a big issue with these systems as well, is that uh, they have a much shorter lifespan than traditional facades and and building coverings interesting no that wasn't brought up but that's a it's an interesting point 
Well, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you, Brian. Yeah, this has been great. And for everybody listening, the book is The Building as Screen, A History, Theory, and Practice of Massive Media. Thank you very much for listening and have a great day.